0: Retailers can purchase from our brands directly, um, and uh, or, or you know through our marketplace or by contacting a sales rep. And um, once that sale is made, we pick, pack, ship the products um, on a two-day turnaround time uh, to retailers across the state. Uh, so we really try to provide this you know like two-day shipping, Amazon Prime type of experience for the cannabis industry. So that way, stores don't have to store products for too long. Oftentimes, they have small back rooms anyways. Um, they can get fresher products because products are moving faster um, and you know they sell through the product.
1: This is The Dime. Dive into the
2: cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents.
1: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields and with me as always is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Vince Ning, CEO and founder of Navis. Vince, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um it's been uh doing well. <laughs> I can't complain. Kellen, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, you know, looking forward to talking to Vance and uh enjoying um another West Coast conversation. Uh for our listeners, is that where you're located, Vance? I'm on the West yeah. Coast.
0: Yeah, I'm calling in from San Francisco today. Yeah. Uh what about you guys? I'm in Call New York. York. Okay,
1: I think I think we're going to get into it today, but I think that Navis has some aspirations for the East Coast as well. It's going to take us a little while to kind of get us up up to speed, but we can kind of dive into that. So, Vince, for our listeners, can you give us a little background about you and how you got in the cannabis space? Yeah,
0: um, so you know, I, I my background professionally comes from tech, and so that's where you know I was trained in college, studied computer science, economics, stats, um, pretty quantitatively driven, um, and same with my co-founder actually. Um, and so, you know, when we first moved out to West Coast, it was actually to join tech companies. And so, from there, we actually well, we started out in corporate, you know, working Microsoft, Facebook, just big tech, run-of-the-mill. And then from there, started doing startups, you know, enterprise software as a service companies. I sold my last company to Amazon. From there, wanted to work on something that was a bit more interesting than just software. Cannabis was just coming out of the fold in terms of uh, recreational legalization. 2017 or 2018 was when first legal sales happened. So I was looking into the space, um, had a friend who had a cannabis brand, uh, and I was just picking his brain one day. And um, I just wanted to meet more and more people in the industry because it was so fascinating to see you know, such a huge industry transition from the illicit market to the legal market. And you know, of course, both my co-founder and I are, uh, you know, we smoke weed and we were uh, actually best friends growing up. So um, knowing him from high school, we, we would bond over and you know, just smoke weed. And so it was a, a kind of a fun passion project of ours to just do some exploratory market research into this new industry that just made a ton of sense. Um, and we wanted to just apply our uh, tech skill set to the industry to see how we can help grow it. Um, Just knowing how much the market was going to grow, how many operators there were going to be. We just felt there was going to be a lot of complexity and a lot of mess. Um, And so what we wanted to do was get right in the middle of it into the distribution side of the sector and try to streamline as much as possible. And so from that one friend who became our first customer as a brand, through just word of mouth referrals, we just grew now to servicing over 150 um, exclusive brands on our platform. Um, and we list them all on our B2B marketplace for retailers to be able to buy um, products from you know vendors uh, and suppliers that, that that we work with. And so, uh, you know, some of our largest, more notable brands include um, Raw Garden, uh, Amber Valley Plus, uh, Ganja Gold, Bloom. Um, and you know, one of the main values that we like to drive into the market is you know, of course, while we like to have you know the big, well-known brands on our platform. We also really like to help the small operators as well. So, you know, major difference that you see in in our business versus in you know another traditional distribute distributors business is you know, we serve five times more brands than uh, any other uh, distribution platform. And so, um, it really we we have a strong uh, motivation to Helping out a lot of the smaller operators out there to help them be able to launch and scale and sustain as well.
1: I'm fascinated by you and your your co founders' background, especially with the big tech, right and in Silicon Valley. When you're working for those big firms, you're pushing innovation. And now, in the cannabis industry, you're kind of chopping down the trees and really starting the path forward. So, any hesitation to kind of go from, let's say, big Silicon Valley tech to the cannabis industry?
0: Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it was a lot of just uh, I, I felt like um, because cannabis, you know, in, in everyone in the back of everyone's mind, it just felt unsafe and insecure. That was definitely my initial, I guess personal hesitation, reservation coming into the space. But you know when i, I, I that's why I kind of started with just like a friend of mine who was in the space uh, since i we had trust, and he introduced me to more people, and I trusted his introductions. And so you know a lot of our business today um, as an infrastructure as a service business is built on that customer trust. You know that lifeblood is really. What gives people more confidence to refer more customers to us? and um, that's what makes this this wheel spin. And uh, apart from that, you know I, we we honestly thought it was a really cool space. People in the industry were really genuine and real and authentic. You know the problems were very tangible. Um, you know, coming from tech, you're always staring at a screen. I can't say I, I don't always stare at a screen today, but you know, when when you're delivering products, like I, I started doing the deliveries myself for the better part of the first year of operations. You know, you get to touch and feel, uh, uh, you know, what your service is doing in the industry um, and how it's actually helping move products from point A to point B safely and securely, handling cash collections and uh, you know, processing that. It's a it's a real business, um, and some, sometimes you know I feel like software lives in the virtual realm, and it's hard to it's hard to uh, I guess like it's hard to touch and feel it. So that was something that was really fascinating to us, just coming from tech.
2: Yeah, that's super cool. I want to get into some of the, the nuances associated with taking the concept from inception, right, to actually like a fully functional platform. So, in other startup kind of software based industries, it's, there's not a ton of regulations, right? So, how did you guys kind of uh, tackle all of the regulations and compliance and all of that associated with cannabis while yeah. designing the, the software platform to fit into that very complex environment, if you will? Yeah, it's almost the, uh, it's
0: almost the opposite, right? Like now tech is moving towards this whole Web3 trend where yeah. everything's centralized and there's no rules. And uh, you know cannabis is the most regulated. <laughs> <industry> <laughs> I mean, I think fundamentally we we came into the space, and we 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 honestly, there were people who said they were experts were not experts because the regs had just come out. And so you know everyone was on the same playing field. Um, and we actually just had to read the regulations ourselves um, to interpret it. There were no, there was no court precedents or legal precedents or, or any rulings on how you know, various phrases in the regulations were interpreted. And so we just kind of had to go with our gut feeling, understand that there were obviously risks and just be okay with it. Um, A lot of the mentality back then, I think was just, you know, we were, we were small time. No one's ever going to really, you know, (laughs) you know, turn the rock uh, and try to, try to gut us out of the industry because it's not worth anyone's time. But then as we got larger and larger, you know, we (laughs) obviously had to uh, get some lawyers involved and, get a couple of additional opinions before we made decisions. I mean, I think though, when we still, still a lot of, um, you know, regulations and interpretations are, uh, and, and I guess, you know, the decisions you make against those are, uh, judgment calls. And so, you know when when it comes down to it, for us, like we really just think about our main stakeholders. It's like you know what do uh, our customers want? What makes sense um, as a you know as a from a business standpoint, and then how does it affect you know our team? How does it affect our shareholders, our own profitability? And then we just make a sound decision based on those main things. But it really comes down to you know what the customer wants just because I think that's sort of like our golden compass in terms of how uh, how we prioritize decisions.
1: It's very smart. So let's stay in like the early days. Take us through like what the business plan looked like and then pitching those initial customers to kind of get them on board with the service and then kind of the iterations and the scaling process, because the complexity of what you're doing is really challenging. And I think some people don't understand how many variables are being kind of handled at the same time.
0: Yeah. I mean, the first customers, you know, it, it again comes back to just what the customer needs. And um back then we didn't have our, you know, B2B marketplace. We didn't build like a NAPIS capital solution. We didn't build analytics tools. We just built a website to help people enter orders in that we would deliver and fulfill on and we would collect payments for. And that's what people needed. Like they didn't need some fancy software to tell them, like, oh, these like cool analytics. They didn't need AI. Um, they just needed uh, some way to deliver their products from point A to point B compliantly and get paid. and um, and so you know we we came in as those trustworthy guys who you know would do all of that and not steal from them um, and uh, deliver a, just a good quality of service for fulfilling their products. And that was the initial pitch. Um, you know we would do the deliveries ourselves just to give that a high touch experience and build a relationship directly with uh, you know the execs at these companies. and, and through that it's just you know one brand at a time we just sort of pieced this whole thing together and you know we were learning from them just as much as they were they were using our service and that's it, it, you know when, whenever we ran into snags, we would just you know build features uh, to cover the cover all the you know sort of edge cases that came along in logistics. Um, and uh, over time, as these businesses and small like startup upstarts on the brand side or on the retail side started scaling, they started telling us, oh, we need you know financial solutions. We need. Analytics tools because my team's getting too large. I, I don't know how to. I don't know what's going on in my business anymore. And uh, they just needed more, uh, you know, more more tools that help them at scale. And so that's how we started to build out and flesh out the rest of our platform. Um, and that's what currently exists today. And you know, it makes sense when when you look at other industries. They, I would say the business that we have today is similar to the fulfillment by Amazon business, um, and you know, that. exists in a very mature market in CPG. And, you know, as the cannabis industry evolves into a more mature market, that's the solution that will likely uh, apply here as well. So, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how we've built that platform and how we started out um, piecemealing it together.
1: Yeah, I think it's so smart that you use customer feedback in order to build those additional features and tools because, right, let the customer tell you what they need and then build it around and support them because you're right the more you support your customer, the more they're going to come back and rely on you and the more you're an integral part of the, the value chain. So let's yeah. talk about some of those tools. There's got to be some really incredible data insights you got on those tools. So what, yep. what data insights can you share and what insights should operators be thinking more about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think especially in this day and age, I would say cash flow is everything. Um, you know, I think people have you know more or less figured out and people are really smart about um, how they... Build their products. Um, what categories they want to invest in? Um, you know, I think right now on the product trend side of things, people generally are on the same page that you know infused uh, pre rolls are really popular. You know, I think uh, beverages are on the rise, but you know, obviously there's still infrastructural challenges. And so there's there's general trends that people are aware about, and you know, I think our data uh, definitely suggests that as well. But you know, I think the the main thing that people really need to pay attention to right now is just Getting paid on time um, because ultimately that's the lifeblood of their business and ours too, for that matter. Um, And so, you know, a lot of the tools that we're building, um, that we've built recently and in the near future, are targeted towards um, understanding creditworthiness of who the suppliers are selling to on the retail side so that they can make the best call in terms of, you know, how much to sell to that store. Or what terms to give to them, um, and whether or not to use Navis capital to help, you know, provide liquidity for them for their business. And you know, I think a lot of that falls within the backdrop of you know the capital market environment um, really shutting off. You know, public markets are down, not even just within cannabis, but just in the broader economy. Tech stocks are down thirty to fifty percent, and it's really, uh, yeah, it's a bloodbath out there, and uh, it's it's hurting private markets too. So, with a dearth of capital coming into this space, uh, you know businesses just really need to survive on their own. Um, and so you know for us it's it's you know, we 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 don't we're a platform. so we we don't own our brands, any brands. we don't take equity stakes in brands. So you know we it's it is also our job beyond just fulfilling and the you know the I guess like analytics and all that sort of stuff. Our job is also to help keep our customers alive, too, because um, you know we're nothing without you know the operators on both sides of our marketplace. Um, and so, I think that's the current trend in terms of our feature development, as well as um, you know what we'd like to share in terms of uh, you know how we'd like to shape the market and their decision making when they make sales from an analytics perspective.
2: I want to stay on the the capital service offering that you guys is uh, put together. What was the biggest challenge putting that whole kind of department together in your guys' organization? Because like, a, it's not easy raising capital for um, any startup, let alone in cannabis. Yeah. Especially with all the risks associated with now, now you're pretending to be a bank, kind of almost in that same like gray area marketplace. What were the conversations with some of the backers and kind of the entities providing that that capital for for liquidity in the marketplace? What were those conversations like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for creditors for that business, um, you know, I think everyone see, saw the opportunity because of the fact that banks can't actually. Touch the space in broader perspective, and so as a result, you know our business because we do the fulfillment, because we do the payment collections on behalf of all of our vendors and suppliers. We had sort of this like sort of arbitrage, or rather, like we had unique insights into how credit worthy a retailer was, and it was very constant feedback because of our day to day collections activities. Um, like we knew how timely this payment was going to come um, from this particular retailer versus the next. And so that was something that that that's where the data really helps um, in terms of our underwriting and our ability to minimize credit risk. And beyond that, you know, I think In cannabis, people are uh, people really just need cash, and they don't necessarily want to take out a huge loan against their business, um, since many businesses aren't profitable. And so, this was sort of a way. So, we have basically a factoring business, and it's it's a way for uh, brands uh, to be able to really get liquidity on a uh, more
2: granular basis. And would you call it micro, like almost like microfinance?
0: Yeah, in a way, it is very like you know each invoice average. Averages about you know three to four thousand bucks, and that's how small the little transactions are. But and and then brands can use it on a case by case basis, so they don't necessarily have to encumber their entire balance sheet uh, with a huge term loan um, and not be able to pay it back, and you know run the risk of losing ownership of their business. Um, this is a way where they can also just use their existing. Fulfillment partner to also help with their financing too. So you know, becoming more of this all-in-one platform for them um, made it easier to um, yeah made it easier for them to to just have to basically just work with one party to get all these things done. And launching the product was really just uh, you know we thought about a lot of different ways to do it, but we just thought having it be done in line with the order and collections lifecycle, um, like a unit level lifecycle, was just the best way because. You know, ultimately, you know, for it, it just streamlines the payment side um, for us. Rather than having to underwrite every single brand uh, every single time, it was just you know, invoices were generated. This is cookie cutter. We could generalize it, um, and we found like a scalable, repeatable way to do it. Um, so, yeah, and and you know, we we basically just so some of our investors um, invested in other factoring businesses and put me in touch with them. Uh, I got on calls with them, just. Gleaned some advice that they had, and um, you know some of the initial infrastructural setup that was required, and you know basically just set the same thing up. And uh, it took about a few months, and we launched in market with a couple customers. And um, you know before you knew it, uh, you know when people sign up for distribution now, they immediately turn on this financing service because at the end of the day, it costs them nothing to have it on. It's you know only if they decide to use it. Um, so it's always like a it's always an added benefit. Are most of the customers on the retail side currently not yet? I mean, well, each transaction you know includes a brand and a retailer. Right now, we basically we we underwrite the retailer because they're the yeah. ones that are really paying. That's um, exactly okay. Yeah, yeah, but but then the brands are the ones who pay the fee for the uh, for the. Factory.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like both sides are in it together.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because the brands are the one that's getting immediate liquidity on. The, yeah, the, and the, the
2: the retailers taking the risk, right? Because now they have to pay it back. So exactly, yeah. everyone's got skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: It's got to be such a challenging process, right? Can Can you lay out like a little more of a scenario for that for our listeners to try to understand like exactly how that works? Because I think it's such an integral part, especially given like the cash capacities in the space.
0: Yeah. So the the sort of uh, example would be brand A would sell you know let's say hundred thousand dollars worth of products in an order to retailer a. and their you know outcomes like an invoice. and you know that hundred thousand dollar invoice might be sold on let's say net 30 terms, which means the retailer has 30 days to pay it back. Um, after they have the product they get to sell through the product, they'll probably have the cash to pay it back. Um, the brand oftentimes these are very small businesses who, You know, 100,000 bucks might be all the money they have. And so they put it all in the inventory, they shipped it off, they don't have the money to go start producing their next batch of inventory. And so that's not a good way to build a brand. Um, And so, for, you know, because ultimately what would happen is after the 30 days, perhaps the retailers sold through, um, ideally, it has sold through the product, that shelf space goes empty. But as a brand, you don't want gaps in. Product availability on the stores of shelves. And so, um, you know, they want to be able to start producing their next batch of inventory before that product sells through. And so, what they'll do is they can take that invoice, it's an asset, it's an account receivable. They can sell it to Navis, and Navis will underwrite and say, hey, okay, as long as this retailer we know will pay on time, we will basically buy this invoice and then basically pay the invoice in advance on behalf of the retailer first, but we would pay it out at a discount. You know That's where we make our money. So we pay it out $0.97 cents on the dollar. The brand gets their $0.97 cents, um, and they can start doing whatever they want with it, running their business, paying payroll, start producing the next batch of inventory. And then we will wait the next 30 days to collect from the retailer. And then we'll make that spread, that difference between the $0.97 cents and the whole dollar um, on that invoice. And so that's you know one life cycle of the transaction, but it helps. Provide a lot more uh, like liquidity in the market, as well as um, improve sort of the 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 life cycle, of the sort of like velocity of inventory um, through the supply chain as well
1: such a critical piece of the puzzle. And I'm curious to know, I mean, I, obviously you can't share from a business perspective, how much like as a percentage wise of your business that's become, but I'd assume that's probably a really, that's becoming bigger and bigger as we continue, because that has to be such a massive need on a day-to-day basis. Because obviously what we've seen in California is is challenges across the board and that just being one of them. So let's stay on California. Can you describe some of the challenges that cal- that California operators are facing?
0: Yeah, um, there's tons. And, uh, you know, we, we feel it. Uh, our customers feel it. I think the biggest one, the biggest challenge right now is um, just incredibly high taxes. And the problem is it's actually starting with at the top of the supply chain with cultivators. So right now there's, you know, ever since the inception of the California market, the rec- recreational market, there's been a cultivation tax and an excise tax. And cultivation taxes were charged based upon the pr- weight of flour that was produced but you know after last year there's been this overproduction oversupply of flour that's coming into the market so you know the average price per pound has fallen significantly but the weight is still the same if not more and so what ends up happening is the taxes don't fall in line with the average price per pound. And so because you're still paying the same taxes but making less money, you know, we've heard cultivators saying that they're paying up to about 40% of what they of their revenue in cultivation tax alone, not to mention all the labor costs and you know the actual cost to produce this product. So you know the, the state, I get it, you know, while they're trying to make their cut of revenue um, from taxes from operators. Also can't you know smother the economy and and you know kill the goose that laid the egg you know, and so um, right now there's been a huge coalition um, and lobbying effort to actually get the cultivation tax removed and um, you know make adjustments to the excise tax portion as well when products are sold at retail so that you know operators don't get squeezed and it's. In, I think in the near term operators being squeezed is obviously a problem in the long term I think for the overall uh, collective of the cannabis industry the legal cannabis industry what operators will have to do is just increase pricing to make their ends meet and who ends up bearing the cost is actually the consumer and so when the consumer goes and buys weed they 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 will choose to buy from the illicit market because there's no taxes being you know burnt, being applied to their own end cost um, and it's oftentimes, you know, same quality product, um, And so at the end of the day, I think uh, what the, the, you know, what, what the government can do in the long run is just lower some of their taxes, keep the business alive and grow, keep the supply chain alive and sustainable and growing, which will ultimately help combat the illicit market. Um, and uh, that, that's, I think that's the biggest challenge right now in the California market.
2: I agree. And I think another thing too, we've, uh, some of our, our partners and clients we talk to out in California they they were like, We're not even gonna not even gonna harvest this year. I'm not even gonna cut my crop down. Cause the yeah. moment they crop it, cut it down, then it goes into that metric system where now it's taxable. Yeah. Right. And they're like, We're not even I'm not gonna make any money if I cut it down. So they're just letting their plants, they just let their plants die in the soil because they literally are gonna lose business if they harvest it, which is wild to me.
0: Yeah, it's so sad. And you know, there's tons of patients out there that need this yes. need this plant. And um, to let it just go to waste because of taxes, uh, no government reform, it's just it's silly. Um, and, um, you know, I think a lot of the problems like this didn't really flare up or uh, till now, because, you know, there, there's obviously the market forces of oversupply of yeah. product, but... The other is just there's a lack of funding coming into the space, um, as mentioned earlier around you know, public market valuations and um, investors being a little gun-shy these days in terms of making, uh, writing those big checks. And so those big checks were the ones that were sort of masking the problems before because people were just running unprofitable businesses. But as long as they were getting money from investors, you know, they, could, they could keep their business alive. But now that that you know, pool of money is siphoned off, you know, you really just have to run a sustainable business, and they're seeing that this is, you know, this this is just a major cause of heartburn for a lot of uh, a lot of businesses. It
1: turns out, it's really hard to run a profitable business when the government is just absolutely destroying you with their taxes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's crazy.
0: It's crazy, and and overregulation is just uh, it's not helping anyone.
1: <laughs> no, and I wonder too, right? Like when when you have those conversations with them, and you tell them, right, if you continue to tax us at this level, we're just going to let our products die, and you're going to kill the industry. There's got to be some thought in their mind where if we kill the industry, you're not going to get paid on those fronts. And then all well, that tax money goes away either way. I
2: mean, you see other other companies decided to to leave California because of the taxes, right? Yeah. To Texas yeah. or something like that, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's true. It's true. I mean, it, the, the cost of running a business in California is... You know, it's probably relaxing. one of the highest um, in any state in the US, just from a tax perspective, but also like labor costs, um, cost of supplies. Uh,
2: yeah, it's just, it's, uh, it's cost of it's living
1: for your personnel, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: exactly. Cost of, cost of living. Insane. Probably the best access to talent, though, unfortunately. For sure. That's, that's true. And, and great weather. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> the other what, chance here, right? There's got to be something yeah. good about California. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what you're paying for. It doesn't <laughs> have to snow.
1: So, slightly, <laughs> slightly switching gears, how does the distribution work and what type of paperwork goes in on, the, on those distributions? Like, is there tons of paperwork for all the products? How does that work? Yeah,
0: there, there actually is. And it's actually like such a really annoyingly uh, like a, a small but major, but like really impactful problem. Um, but you know, for, our, for our fulfillment platform, what we do is we'll intake products from cultivators, manufacturers, it's always final package products. Some, most often it's you know cannabis, uh, like vapes, flour, edibles, whatever. Um, and then you know there's also like batteries and like ancillary products too and merch. Um, and so we will store and centralize all of that inventory in our warehouses across the state. Um, we have over 71,000 square feet. We're actually launching a new 86,000 square foot facility. So we're going to be able to service about 30... Right now, we're about 14% of the California market that we serve. And we'll be able to serve about 30% with uh, this new facility from a storage capacity perspective. But what that will be able to do is after we, you know, we're, we hold more and more inventory, uh, we, all those products are listed on our marketplace. Retailers can purchase from our brands directly or you know, through our marketplace or by contacting a sales rep. And um, once that sale is made, we pick, pack, ship the products um, on a two-day turnaround time uh, to retailers across the state. Uh, so, we really try to provide this, you know, like two day shipping, Amazon Prime type of experience for the cannabis industry. So that way, stores don't have to store products for too long. Oftentimes, they have small back rooms, anyways. Um, they can get fresher product because products are moving faster. Um, and, you know, they sell through the product, they pay us. Brands can choose to factor it or not. Um, and, you know, on a weekly or bi weekly basis, we'll pay out the brand um, and we'll manage all the taxes, the packaging compliance all that sort of stuff goes through rigorous checks in our system to make sure that when products get released from the wholesale market into the retail market, um, you know, there's uh, utmost consumer safety um, and, you know, compliance with the regs uh, so that, you know, no one, no one has any you know sort of legal issues with respect to their, their products that they produce. So that's, that's like the unit level life cycle of an order um, and cash getting paid out. And, uh, you know, we, we, we sort of came up with this model uh, as a result of just, you know, we, we wanted to just build a lot of efficiencies and economies of scale. Um, prior to us existing, pretty much brands were just doing their own distribution. And so, you know, thinking about thousands of brands, working with thousands of retailers, that sort of like N-squared problem, people, if everyone delivered their own products, the number of deliveries that would occur in the state would be insane. And so we try to bundle up as many orders and brands as possible into a single order. So it saves everyone time. Um, that's the, the fundamental value of uh, our, our logistics business.
1: Yeah, California doesn't need any more traffic than it already has.
0: Yeah. Oh, I was going to mention that the small but annoying problem is the uh, the fact that the compliance paperwork, you need everything from a shipping manifest that's Wet ink signed. Um, and then you also need uh, like the COAs, like the testing results, oftentimes. And uh, I would say those are probably the two main things, but those testing results are oftentimes dozens of pages. The manifest could be pretty long too. And um, we have to, we, our system integrates with Metric, which is the state's track and trace system. And so, you know, we input all the order information to there before we make the transfer in the delivery. But the manifest has to be printed out, and wet ink signed. And if the state ever audits you for those records, they actually have to scan it back in um, to send it to them. And so it's just, you know, the amount of paperwork that gets printed, reprinted, uh, signed and rescanned in is just uh, hugely burdensome. I mean, I would say as a business, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on, on just paper and printing alone. Um, and so from an environmental perspective or just a cost perspective in general, it's... Um, that that is something that I would love to change. I mean, there's larger problems than that right now, which is the sad part. But um, that's like an obvious low hanging fruit, in my opinion, to just get to, to to just be allowed to do electronic signatures and electronic paperwork for the compliance side of things.
2: Is Metric working on a software mm-hmm. platform that should be able? I mean, a DocuSign, right? Like that's you know I'm
0: Yeah, I'm exactly. Uh, you know, it's like you know when UPS comes- an iPad, right? Like yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when UPS comes to your door to deliver a product. You you know, you sign on their yeah. little pet with their little stylus and their um and their little tablet. In cannabis, you can't do that. because uh, mm-hmm. the regs say you have to print these things out and get a wedding sick signed.
1: <laughs> are there any limits when you're picking up product from someone that like is it is it total volume limit? Is it total number limits? What like what sort of constraints are there? Um
0: it's really just uh, capacity in our vehicles. On the wholesale side, there's no limit to how much product you can have in your vehicle for a delivery. Um, on the consumer delivery side, however, I believe it's right now maybe like three thousand dollars that you can have in your in your car uh, at any given time before you have to go back to the facility to pick up more product. Um, but yeah, on the, for the for wholesaling, there's no um, there's no limit on order sizes.
1: What happens if a police officer pulls over one of your wholesale vans? I mean, that's got to be just an all-day incident of, of the paperwork. So how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's happened in the past uh, for
0: us. And, um, you know, the, the paperwork definitely helps. Uh, you know, they generally just let us go. They see that we're professional. We have binders. We have, like, iPads. We have, you know, everything in the car. GPS locators, security cameras. It's not really. It doesn't look like, uh, you know, some cartel driving around products at all. Um, And uh, the driver will call our dispatchers or and and our team back at the warehouses and um, you know get further information verification as needed. Uh, But you know generally, as long as we show our um, distribution license and we show the invoices and manifests are all um, in
2: order, they they usually just let us go.
0: Your drivers aren't uh, just
2: driving around with like a safe they don't have to go to, so they pull over and he's like, I can't open it. (laughs) <laughs> See, yeah, that is
0: exactly how it is. The so vehicles have safes that are like bolted in the floor and it's a drop-in only safe. So, you know, once it's in, can't come back out until it gets back to our facility and the um, only a couple key folks at the facility know codes to... Oh, there. wow, that's exactly so, how
2: it is. Check it out. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so even if, you know, people get robbed, drivers get robbed on the road, they actually can, you know, honestly say they cannot get into the safe.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. It's probably a very interesting interaction with the police officer. (laughs) I can't get into it and I'm just really sorry about that. I I don't know the cops. (laughs) They're like, "Uh, I don't believe you. (laughs) What is the biggest challenge setting up your business that most wouldn't know?
0: I would say a big part of it is recruiting. You know, cannabis, while everyone sees it as a huge opportunity and a lot of people smoke weed, you know, two-thirds of all Americans support cannabis for them to kind of change gears on their career and work full-time at a cannabis company, I think would still raise eyebrows for a lot of people. Um, and this industry um, it, amongst any new industry, amongst you know, any other new industry needs that good talent coming from other industries who have experience in logistics, supply chain, in CPG, in you know, product creation, branding. And you know, a lot of those people just won't join the cannabis industry because it's still federally illegal. And whether it's moral or not or if it's just a legal thing, um, you know some people, you know America was built on the backs of immigrants as a melting pot here. and you know immigrants are oftentimes afraid of, you know being a part of Canada because it hampers their ability to get a green card. Um, and so you know it's it's there's things like that that really um, restrain good talent from coming into the space. And we need always constantly our job is I've built companies before. This is the first time I think I've done. I, well, not the first time, but I think I would say this is the company I've done the most, you know, education about the product on um, in terms of not just our services, but you know what we deliver. Uh, just because I think it's important that people who work at NABIS and people who are thinking about even investing in the space um, understand that this is um, a product that's worth having around in society, and it's
1: um, you know it, it was wrongly you know put in a box back in the eighties. Amazon used their data inside trends to release products any future roadmap ideas of navis releasing cons- consumer facing products
0: no not really um, you know it's always been a thought and people always ask us about it but you know the, the, one of the big thing one of the big reasons we've been able to scale our platforms to the extent that we have today is because we're um, grounded in this agnosticism where you know, we have a balanced portfolio um, we have competitive brand shipping on our platform but you know, we don't do the sales uh, for them, so we're not picking sides. We don't have our own brands. We don't compete with it. We we don't create conflicts of interest amongst the customers we uh, we fulfill for. So you know that that's you know for for some other distributors who might do that, um, they can pretty much just fill out a menu space of you know one brand in each category and at each price point, and then you're pretty much maxed out on your menu, um, and then you just have to basically keep pumping those. Same 20 brands. Um, for us, you know, we wanted to help out that longer tail of the market because we wanted to give everyone an equal opportunity to get to market. Because we also believe that given how early days it is in the industry and how much RD still has yet to come for the cannabis plant, um, there's so many more products that can be created and commercialized that why limit the market now in terms of consumer choice? Um, and so we we want to. Continue to have this open platform for small business operators to you know try their hand and experiment with new products.
1: Building out the technology stack, what was one concept or fact that surprisingly was overwhelmingly harder than you initially thought?
0: Ooh, I mean, I would say it's definitely the inventory management side because um, it has to abide by compliance standards, and um, there's you know unique SKUs and batches, and there's COAs, and there's Kind of different way, depending on the product category, you could have like you know various different. It's like to define one unit, it actually requires so much metadata um, to actually to to um, to to describe. And so that part, I think we built our inventory, rebuilt our inventory management system like three different times, um, just because the regs kept changing and we needed to add more and more fields into our database. Um, But you know, I think we're in a good place now uh, with our you know location based inventory system and. There's very little inventory, fidelity issues today.
1: Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? Biggest misconception? I would honestly
0: say it's just uh, you know how harmful the product is. It's I think so many people in other generations, even my parents, will still question whether this thing is legitimate or not, um, and whether it's harmful uh, to your body. Um, but you know, studies have shown that it's uh, just so much better than you know, what people drink every day, like eat every day, like alcohol. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think, I think people just don't believe it still.
1: <laughs> Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you can sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Uh,
0: I would honestly say, you know, despite what kind of business you're building, relationships are, are key. I uh, think it's about getting out there, meeting people in the industry, hearing what they're about, um, how they how they view the industry and how they want to shape it, and uh, you know that sort of informs you on how to grow and build your business too to serve you know them as potential customers as well. So and that's definitely always served me well, even as a tech guy who you know who, who I guess uh, you know for, for all intents and purposes likes to just build uh, a website and hope the customers will come. I think it's important to actually learn from them in person. So. Uh, and see and see what their goals are. So that that's been invaluable as an entrepreneur. I think uh, to to still continue to do even today.
1: That's well said. All right, prediction time. Vince, will the cannabis industry follow the same distribution model as the alcohol industry? And if so, when?
0: I think it'll be different, um, mainly because you know when the alcohol industry started, that was before the invention of this thing called the internet. And I think with modern tools and technologies, you can actually build a much more sophisticated and efficient supply chain, um, especially for distribution. Um, and so while the regulations might shake out to be similar, I think there's obviously, I think there's there's ways in which those regulations can be adapted today that with people who are making those regs, you know, their thinking has the you know, modern technology baked in mind. So um, I think it's it'll be it'll be a much more efficient and cost-effective supply chain, uh, I think, than, than alcohol.
2: Kaelin? Oh, that's a good question. Part of me says it, pro- it might not follow the alcohol industry's distribution standpoint based on what the United States Postal Service is like technically allowing, right? So like, they're actively involved in like these hemp shows and stuff for shipping like hemp, right? Um, and so they just say, put a COA in it and you can ship your hemp. And so if the US Postal Service is allowing you to like ship your own hemp flour, or cannabis flour with a COA in it, that's significantly different than the alcohol industry, right? Because if I go to the postal service with a bottle of liquor, they tell me to go kick rocks. Cause it's illegal for me to send like a bottle of whiskey to my dad in a different state. Like completely illegal for me to do that on my own, right? So I think that it could potentially be handled significantly or it, it will be handled differently, and I also think that goes with my prediction that Amazon will be involved in the industry as well. Um, I think so, so I think too. that, yeah, because yeah. I mean, there's that. delivery services for like I can get a I can get cannabis delivered to my house, and that's not as robust in the in the alcohol space either.
1: Yeah. All right, Brian. What do you think? I mean, obviously, Amazon's coming, right? Like they've made pretty <laughs> pretty aggressive waves, and from a logistics standpoint, they're as good as anyone. So. I don't know. I, I think it, it all depends on what ends up happening, right? What's the easiest to regulate and what's the most profitable for the government and what's the least amount of effort in order to kind of get started? So it's, it's really hard to even make those sort of assumptions on that. So I'll go ahead and say, I guess, yes, just to, to be different. Be the other side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Vince, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more about you and your company. Where can they find you? Yeah. So go to
0: nabis.com, N-A-B-I-S.com. Um, you can find out all about our services, what we do, what we're all about um, there. And then um, you know, if you're look, whether you're looking for a job or you're looking to use us as a platform. Um, the other is we we have an Instagram, nabis underscore HQ. Um, and you can see in real time what, what we're, our team's up to all the time.
1: <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll link thumbs up in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. It's been fun.